You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Church Midtown. At the very beginning of the Bible, we see God's good vision for the world, creation in harmony with humanity, and humanity in harmony with God. Join us for our series, Sacred, Genesis 1 and 2. Peace be with you. Today's scripture reading is Genesis 3, 1 through 13. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen behind me. Hear the word of the Lord. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fake leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he asked, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from that tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man replied, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. So the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. Peace be with you. My name is Timothy Paul Jones, and I have the privilege of serving as one of your pastors here at Sojourn Midtown. It is wonderful to be with you this morning. The goodness of God is so great that it can show up even in the darkest place. The goodness of God is so great that it can show up even in the darkest place. I've seen that in so many ways over the past couple of weeks. A couple of weeks ago, I spent a week more time in prison than out of prison for a week. And uh, for real. And so in a couple of maximum security prisons, uh, one women's prison, one men's prison in Texas, teaching people the word of God, teaching, spending time with prisoners in prison. And in that, even in that place, a place that is very dark in many ways, a place that is difficult in many ways, they were on shakedown and lockdown during the week uh, in which basically all of your possessions get thrown out into the, uh, into the, the hallway outside and everything's gone through. So there's a place of a lack of, of dignity, of privacy, those things that you take for granted. And it, even in this, a very dark place in so many ways, I saw so many evidences of the presence of God's grace in this place. I heard men in prison who were believers in Jesus who, who sang out the song, who the sun sets free shall be free indeed. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. And you hear prisoners almost all of whom are there for life in this particular prison, sing out, 
I am free indeed. That's a different experience to hear that. When you hear them sing that out with their hearts, knowing that though they are barred in on every side, that through Christ, they are free. They are free indeed. I asked a prayer request at one point, and and a woman gave a prayer request that I, I never expected to hear. But as evidence of the grace of God in her life, she'd become a Christian. And she said, I ask that we pray for my victim's family through this holiday season. She killed somebody. She asked for prayer for the victim's family. At the end of one of the week, part of the week there, the men got together and, and gave me a prison Bible that they had, a Bible that they have there, and they all signed it and, and gave this to me at the end of the week. I had so many opportunities with people who were Muslim and Buddhist to share the gospel with them. All these evidences of grace, even in a very dark place. God's goodness is so great that his grace is there even in the darkest place. And that's what you see in Genesis chapter 3. You see, Genesis chapter 3 is one of the darkest texts in all of Scripture. And it is because it's where all the darkness traces back to. All the regrets you have, all the struggles you have, all the sin you have, all the things that you struggle with in your life that are dark and evil at times and that you just struggle with at times. It all traces back to Genesis chapter 3. And yet even there, we see the grace of God is present even in this place. And why is that? It's because we serve a God who is sovereign and in control, and he is full of goodness and love, and his goodness and love and his power are so great that he reaches into even the darkest places with his grace. That's the God that we serve. And so we've looked at Genesis chapters 1 and 2, and in those texts we saw this beautiful cosmos, this beautiful sacred world, but now it is then in this text desecrated. Now it begins with saying that the serpent was more crafty. Many of your translations have. That doesn't mean the serpent was a good at crochet or cross stitch or something like that. It means he was manipulative. That was the idea. He's manipulative. He's able to manipulate. He's cunning in so many ways. And when it announces the serpent, that's this dun, 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 dun. dun. That's what it is. It's, it's the, when they say that, this is the villain showing up, okay? This is the villain entering this story. The serpent was more crafty, more cunning than any other creature. And this is Satan in the form of a serpent. Now, we don't know how much of this text is symbolic and how much of it is meant to be taken as literal history, but we do know this. That there was a time through which sin entered into the world through a particular man in a particular place. We see that in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12 where Paul writes to us and says, Just as by one man we are saved, by one man sin entered into the world. And that is this moment that we see here. And the first words that the serpent says is, Did God really say? Did God really say this? Is it true that God said this? Did it really? This, he's planting a seed here of doubt. Now, there is a good doubt. There is a doubt that God can use to grow your faith where you're struggling to find evidence for the Christian faith. And, and you're thinking about that. That's a good and healthy doubt at times that God uses to grow your faith. That is not this doubt right here. This doubt is a different type of doubt, and it's a doubt primarily about whether God is good and whether God will really do what he said he would do. Is he really good? 
And what he really do? Is he able to do what he said he would do? And so here we see an outline beginning of how often we fall into sin. And it is first that there is doubt about God's goodness. And then there is a defiance of God's way followed by a denial of our guilt. And that is often still how we fall into sin today. We doubt, we defy, and then after we defy, we deny God's goodness and we deny our own guilt in the matter. And so here we begin to see this doubt right here. And at first, Eve seems to affirm the truth that God really has given them enough to satisfy them. She affirms the truth of the goodness of God in providing. She says, we can eat of everything else. All these other trees in the garden, we are free to eat from those. Now she adds something in there. She says, we cannot even touch it, which God didn't actually say, but it would have been a good idea if they just hadn't touched it. But she says that. She adds that to his plan, but she says God is... God has given us all these other trees. But then Satan is tempting her with this question of, is God holding something back from you? What's God really holding back from you? Is what God has given you really enough to satisfy you? And that is the real question here. Is what God has given you, is the place where God has placed you, are the restrictions he's placed around your life, are those really things at which you can find satisfaction? Now, there's nothing magical about this fruit. It's not something about the fruit. It really doesn't have to do with the fruit at all. The fruit poses a question of will you be satisfied with what God has provided? That's the question. Will you be satisfied with what God provides? That's the question. And here's a truth I want to get into your life today, that it will make your life in Christ much better if you get this truth in your life. And it's this. Whatever God withholds from me, he withholds because of his love for me. Whatever God withholds from me, he withholds because of his love for me. I want you to say that back to me so that we can make sure and get that in our minds. Whatever God withholds from me, he withholds because of his love for me. That is the truth to weave into every part of your Christian life because that's the question here. Is is God withholding something that makes him something less than good. And what God's withholding here is a knowledge of evil, a knowledge of evil. And remember that the essence of evil, we might say, is is when we declare God's way is not the best way and I have a better way. That's the essence of evil. That's the essence of sin is for when we say God has his way is not the best way and I have a better way. But the truth in this is that whatever God withholds from me, he withholds because of his love for me. And by commanding them not to eat of this tree, God was withholding from them a knowledge of evil. They knew good, but they just didn't know good in contrast to evil. He's withholding from them a knowledge of evil. And we know so much evil in our lives that it is difficult for us to imagine what would it be like not to know evil at all. What would it actually be like? The closest we actually get to that, I think, is is in those moments where you have that yearning and that memory of a moment in your childhood when you were just far more innocent. And sometimes we yearn for that. We long for that. What What is that? 
It's that yearning for just a status when we don't even know evil. Even though as a child we knew evil, there was less of it we knew. And we yearn for that innocence at times. And that yearning awakens us to a recognition that there was a time in humanity's history when humanity knew no evil at all. What would that be like? Rich Mullins, a musician, wrote a song called Growing Young, wrestling with this question. And there's a couple of lines in this song that go like this. I've gone so far from my home. I've seen the world and I have known so many secrets I wish now I did not know. Have you ever felt that way? There are just things I wish I didn't even know. There are things I know now that it would have been so good had I never known those at all. Because they've crept into my heart and they've made it cold and dark. I wish I didn't even know that. Well, that's the beautiful grace and mercy in which Adam and Eve were living of never even knowing evil. That's what they were living in. That's what they were living in in this moment. And what God was withholding from them, he withheld because of his love for them. But it's this lie that they began to believe that's still a lie today. And it's that what God has given to me is not enough to satisfy me. That is the lie that haunts you still today and haunts me. That what God has given to me is just not enough to satisfy me. It affects how we deal with money, thinking I always have to have more and I can't be generous because I need more. It has to do with our singleness, how we steward singleness, of thinking I just have to have this person in my life. What God has given me is not enough for me to find joy in my singleness. That also affects our marriages. Our spouse, we're thinking, this spouse I have is not enough to satisfy me. I need something else beyond this. I can't find satisfaction in what God has given to me. And the limits that God places on our lives in so many different areas. And we see those as restrictions that are evil and onerous. But in truth, it is God withholding something from us because he loves us. Because he loves us. What we develop this attitude of is, I deserve everything I desire. I deserve everything I want, and if I am not getting it, I am not satisfied with it, I don't feel satisfied, then God is withholding something from me. But what God has given me is not enough to satisfy me. But what God had given Adam and Eve is the same thing he gives to you if you are in Christ. He gives himself He gives himself, and he is enough to satisfy us. God gives us the gift of himself, and he is enough to satisfy you. He's enough. So trust in him. Rest in him. He is satisfying, and his way is best. But the temptation for them, for me, for you, is instead of trusting that God places enough in my life to satisfy me, is I got to have something more. I cannot be satisfied till I get that, whatever that may be. And whatever you look at and say, I have to have that to be satisfied, behold, that is your God. That is your God. And so she reaches out for this knowledge 
and takes it, and she defies God's way. She wants to be as God, knowing good and evil. And so many stories that we tell trace back to this. You think about the stories we tell in which there's a character in the story who gains something that gets power, and in the end, it turns on them and destroys them. Think about the Lord of the Rings, Gollum. He wants the ring, and he finally gets the ring, and it gives him power, but at the same time, it also destroys him. We think about the Deathly Hallows. Voldemort wants the Deathly Hallows so that he can live forever, and yet it's by means of those that his destruction eventually happens. Think about good old Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. They find the ark. They think it's going to give infinite power. They open the lid and all their faces melt. I mean, what were we thinking PG ratings in the 1980s? I don't even know. I don't even know. But, but that's what happens in this. It turns on them, destroys them. All of those stories trace back to Eve right here before the tree. I take that. I get that. But it turns and it destroys. It destroys. Because sin always costs more then you plan to pay, and it keeps you longer than you plan to stay. It always, always does. And yes, she gains knowledge of good and evil, but it brings death, spiritual death in the moment and physical death later. But one of the most important phrases in this is in verse 6. In verse 6, it says there, he was with her who was with her. Where's Adam this whole time? Adam is just standing there the whole time. Satan is macking on his wife, and he just stands there. What is the brother thinking? He's just standing there this whole time. It says, who was with her? He just stands there. He just stands there. And Adam's passivity is part of humanity's fall into sin. Remember that. Adam's passivity is part of humanity's fall into sin. And there is a pattern of men being passive when women are being dishonored, exploited, and degraded. There has been a pattern for that all all the way back to this tree in the garden of men who are passive while women are dishonored, exploited, and degraded. But brothers, in Christ... There is power to do what Adam didn't do because Jesus did what Adam didn't do. There is power for that. So I just want to say to you, don't be Adam. Do not be Adam. You're in community group, and there's a woman who cannot get her words out because of the fact that she keeps being talked down and pressed down and people don't listen. Do not just stand there. Say so. Open the door for her to share and to say what she has to say. Somebody makes a degrading comment about a woman? Do not just stand there. Say something. Say so. A friend that's complaining about his wife. And and say something about the way he's speaking about her. Because one of the things our wives need most is to know that they can trust the way we speak of them when we're away from them. Don't let that happen. Call out your brothers on that. For goodness sake, if there is abuse that you know about, then take it to every appropriate authority and do not let that happen. We must create situations where there is safety and truth. 
And men have too often just stood there, just stood there like Adam did. This week, as I was in a women's prison, one woman came to me, and she just started telling her story of so many different things. And she said, I chose what I chose because I never knew there were men in the world who wouldn't hurt me. Because as she went through her life, her father, her boyfriends, and a whole bunch of other men, she said, I've never known a man who wasn't there to hurt me. Do you know what? For that to be the case, there were a lot of men who had to just stand there. Had to stand there instead of stepping in and doing what is right. Do not be that way. Do not be as Adam here and just stand there. When they take the fruit and they both eat of it, they both feel shame in that moment. And that's not because their bodies are evil. Remember, when God created Adam and Eve and he'd completed his creation of them, he declared it not just good, but very good. And your physical body is included in that. It is very good. There's no hint here of anything where our bodies, our physical selves are evil. That's not the point. What happens in this moment is they understand and see the ways that their bodies can be used to hurt and to be hurt. They see the ways their bodies can be used to exploit and to be exploited. And when they feel that, they feel shame. They feel shame as they recognize what they have bought into, what they have brought into the world. And so they're feeling the shame. And what they should have done at this point is cried out to God. God, we don't know what to do, but we have failed. We are feeling the shame and crying out to God and running to him. And that's a reminder to us that when you are caught in sin, don't run from it. Don't run from our God, but run to our God. Don't run from, run to. But they didn't. Instead, what they did is what you and I want to do so many times, which is to deny their responsibility. To deny they had any responsibility in the whole thing. And they start blaming one another. Eve blames the serpent. Adam blames Eve. There's blame going around, but they still feel shame in the midst of this. And so they cover themselves with fig leaves. And yet even that can't stop their shame. And then they hear the sound of God walking in the garden. Now this is symbolic, metaphorical language. God doesn't walk. But there is a sense here in which they sensed the manifest presence of God sweeping through the garden at a particular time when perhaps in the past they had met with God and they had encountered God and it was coming through the garden. The point of that is that God was seeking them. Like a father looking for his lost children, like a shepherd looking for his lost sheep, God is looking for them. And we see here so clearly how grace shows up even in the most unexpected place, because God comes seeking them and looking for them. God didn't have to do that. You know what God could have done? Good luck on this now. You've messed it up. I'll be over here creating another universe. I mean, that's what God could have done. God could have just turned to them and said, you blew it. You're on your own. Awesome. Wow. Do you have a clue what happens now? I'm gone. I'm out of here. That's what God could have done. But God does not do that. He comes seeking them. And then you start to realize that sin can make you stupid. 
Because suddenly Adam and Eve are not only sinners, they're stupid as well. Because here's what they do. They say, you know what? I know he created everything in this world and all the others. I know that God did all this, but maybe if we go get under the trees, he can't find us. To the trees, to the trees. This makes no sense whatsoever. It makes no sense. Sin makes you stupid sometimes. So they go running to the trees, but here's a life principle I want you to get. God is better at hide and seek than you are. Just be aware of that. It's one of the many perquisites of being God that he's better at hide and seek than you because he already knows where you are. So they run to the trees and they hide in the trees amid the fruit that they were free to eat. And they hide there. And then God calls out, where are you, Adam? Where are you? Where are you? Now, whenever God asks a question, always pay attention. Because God is asking the question for our benefit, not for his. Because God already knows the answer. So if God asks a question, he's not trying to get an answer. He's trying to remind us or to help us understand what the answer ought to be and is. So for example, in the book of Ezekiel, when God says to Ezekiel, can these dry bones live? God is not asking that because God is uncertain about whether the dry bones can live. God knows that the dry bones can live. But Ezekiel doesn't know whether the dry bones can live. When in the, book of, in the book of Exodus, God says to Moses, what do you have there in your hand? The shepherd's staff in his hand. What do you have there in your hand? God knows what's in his hand. But Moses doesn't know what God can do with what's in his hand. And when God says to Adam, he says, where are you? It's not because God doesn't know where Adam is. It's because Adam doesn't know where Adam really is. He asks the question not for him to find out where Adam is, but so that Adam realizes where Adam is. That's why he asks the question, where are you? God still asks that question, by the way. Do you know that? He may not ask it audibly. He may not ask it in the same way that he did here, but God still asks that question. You're in a conversation And you say something that you know what you said is wrong. There's something wrong about it. And you feel that twinge within you of recognizing that's not how I, as a believer in Jesus Christ, should speak. You feel that in you. That's God saying, where where are you? Where are you? You enter into this relationship, and you have a pretty good idea of where this relationship could go and you know it's not right, and you want to step into it anyway, and you feel that hesitation in your soul, and that is God saying to you, where, where are you, really? Where are you? God still asks that question. You write something up and maybe even hit send on email or social media, and it's up there, and you realize that wasn't it. (laughs) Where are you? And we have a choice at that moment, the same choice they had, which is we can double down and try to defend it or hope people don't notice it, or we can just go on, or we can recognize, hey, I I blew it. I'm sorry. I was just wrong. That wasn't what I should have said. I'm sorry. You got that choice, just like they did. 
when you feel that in your soul of God saying to you, where are you? He still says it today. Where are you? Because his goodness is so great that his grace shows up even in our darkest place. And for the Christian, the answer to that question, where are you, is always the same. It is, I am in Christ. I am in Christ. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that's always the answer to that question. The question is simply, will we live according to what we already are in Christ? Because in Christ, you are already forgiven. In Christ, you are already pardoned. In Christ, you are already free. But will you live according to what God has already made you in Christ? Where are you? You're in Christ. Will you live like it? Will you live like what God has already made you? But what they did instead is tried to downplay, cover Hide blame. And so do you and so do I. That's what we want to do. Where are you? Where are you? I am in Christ, and therefore I will live as someone in Christ with nothing to prove but everything to gain through my Savior. I will live in his way. And next week we're going to look in detail at verse 15. And so I'm going to skip over that, but I want to point out one thing. God curses the serpent, but he gets consequences to Adam and Eve. He curses the serpent, he curses the earth, but he doesn't curse Adam and Eve. He tells them the consequences. This is not God up in the heavens saying, oh, look what you did, I caught you, I got you. Here's what I'm going to do to curse you. That's not what God does. Instead, these are the words of a brokenhearted father saying, because of what you did, Here's going to be the consequence of it. Here's what's going to happen as a result of what you did. There's a sense in which it's as if God is saying, was it really worth it? Was it worth it? This is what you've brought on yourselves. Was it really worth it? And he says in verse 16 to the woman, I will greatly increase your labor pains with pain. You will give birth to children. Now, much ink is filled talking about this to do with how women have pain in childbirth, and that's part of this. But I don't want to get into that because I don't think that's actually the primary point of this. That's being used as a metaphor for something deeper, that our sexuality becomes disordered. You long for a spouse, long for a mate, and that doesn't happen. You long for children, and they never come. Our sexuality, all of these things to do with it become disordered in the fall. And then he says in the end of verse 16, you will want to control your husband, but he will dominate you. There's several different ways to translate that. But however we translate it, one thing is clear that what there is here is a disordering of power. So we see first our sexuality becomes disordered. Then we see that power and authority become disordered. It starts with the man and the woman, but it doesn't end there. This misuse of power, this using of power to build ourselves up and to press others down, to crush others, that extends from neighborhoods to nations to the world and entire systems become in place that perpetuate injustice. That's what's happening right here. It starts with the man and the woman, but it doesn't end there. It goes to the whole world where power 
is misused, where we gain power for ourselves and use it to press others down. Augustine, a saint from Africa in the 4th and 5th century theologian, he called it libido dominante, a lust for power or a lust for domination. He says that infects all of us. Even as it seeks to dominate others, the city of humanity, that is all the powers arrayed against God's power, is dominated by its own lust for dominance. Libido dominante. What he's saying in that is that we have this desire for power, this desire to be in charge, it's a desire to be in control, this desire to set ourselves up as gods, and yet the very desire for power actually just eats at us and dominates us. That's what it does. And you may think, yeah, that's not me. I'm not a powerful person. When was the last time you lost your temper? You know what happens when we lose our temper? What we're basically doing, what is happening in that, is we wanted something to go our way, and it didn't go our way, and so we react with anger because we can't control that situation. Libido dominandi. Lust for dominance. Lust for control. I want to be in charge of the whole situation. And if I can't be, then I will respond in some way that even though I can't take charge and I end up looking like an idiot for doing so, I'm going to respond in some way that just shows my anger to everybody. Libido dominandi. That's what it is. Deep inside us. It's what Tears for Fears said in 1985. Everybody wants to rule the world. And so do you. And so do I. Whether we admit it or not, we all want to be in charge of the world. We all want to be in control, all of us. We just love ourselves. We want to be the center of it all. We need to own this and recognize this. I'll own it even if you won't. TPJ loves himself some TPJ. And he's pretty sure sometimes that if I could be in control, the whole world would be a lot better. And you feel that way too. You feel that way too. Libido dominandi, a lust for dominance and for power. I doubt that Kurt Cobain read much Augustine, but in Spells Like Teen Spirit, there's the line in that, my libido, a mosquito. <laughs> it drains us and sucks the life out of us, this libido, this lust, this desire. It sucks the life out of us. That's what happens in your life. It's what happens in mine. That's what begins here with this misuse, this distortion of power. But not only that, in verses 17 through 19, we see that labor and work are distorted. Because you obeyed your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you. You must not eat of it. The ground is cursed because of you. In painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, but you will eat the grain of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat food until you return to the ground. For out of it, you were taken your dust, and to dust you return. Labor, work, was supposed to be joy. Labor and work would be things where we labored and, and, and we had created things that were beautiful and good and our work went according to plans that, were, that turned out to be beautiful things in the world. But instead, labor just gets really hard. Working gets hard where there's work that you're stressed over and that doesn't come out the way you want it to and despite your best intentions, that, that there are things that don't work correctly and you feel frustrated in your labors and you want to escape from them. Why? Because even that has borne the mark of 
sin. We are so crooked, so twisted, so broken, so desecrated. Yet hear the good news. We are also so sacred and so loved. (laughs) Despite all of this, you are still created in God's image. The image is fractured, is distorted in you, but it's still there. And God loves that reflection of himself in you. Though we are broken and desecrated, we are sacred and we are loved. God's goodness is so great that his grace can show up even in the darkest place. I want to leave you with just one question, and that is where is your dark place right now? Where's the spot in your life where you are defending, you are hiding? Where is that in your life where you're blaming others or maybe just holding it completely back from others? Where is the dark place in your life? Stop hiding. God is better at hide and seek than you are. And he knew your mess would be here before you ever got here. So run to him. Run to him. And run to others around you who will help you not by affirming a pat on the back and that's okay. But run to people all around you who will say, by God's power, by Christ, not our own, we are going to help you get out of this. We're going to help you to escape this. Run, run to your Savior. Run to your Savior. God's goodness is so great that His grace shows up even in the darkest place. And even here, there are hints that point forward to something beautiful that is yet to come. In this moment of sin, they stood naked beneath a tree and they blamed one another for their sins. (laughs) They blamed the serpent. They blamed each other. For their sins. The shame that they felt, they tried to project it on others as they stood naked beneath the tree. But that points forward to someone someday who will hang naked from the tree, who deserves no blame and no shame, but he bore the blame and the shame that is ours. He bore that blame. He bore that shame. And because of that, for those who trust in him, we can be made sacred, not just in the image of God fractured within us, but we can be made sacred again through Christ and his holiness, his righteousness given to us. You can be sacred in Christ in a way that you did not deserve and I do not deserve. But God gives it to us as a gift. Let's pray. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Sojourn Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit sojournchurch.com slash midtown.